Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Veronica Kibbenson. Uh, she has a PhD in marine science at UC Santa Barbara. And we're going to talk about uh, her research. So, Veronica, thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research. What are you working on? Uh, yeah, so I started as a marine scientist and I study microorganisms and their adaptations to the environment. So how do they interact with their surroundings, different strategies that they use for survival, and especially their metabolism. So what do they consume and then what do they produce? And I studied marine microbes first and then sort of came across some interesting data outside of of that uh, realm. Oh, so, okay, what kind of... uh... What organism that contains, you know, are you looking at it in the freewheeling free form or are you looking at it inside of an organism, the bacteria? Uh, so first I was looking at uh, in the ocean. So we're looking uh, in, in marine sediment and things like that. And that was sort of my focus. And I saw some adaptations. So the first one that I kind of uh, became very interested in is called genetic code expansion. And it refers to how an organism can use their genetic code differently. So we all know, you know, the DNA nucleotides and things like that. And so specifically what I look at, and first I'll define this, is a codon is a sequence of three DNA nucleotides that correspond to a specific amino acid or to a stop signal during protein synthesis. So for genetic code expansion, usually organisms have... Uh, 20 amino acids, and for bacteria, they have three stop codons. So the expansion part comes in when instead of having 20 amino acids, they can have 20 up to 22 amino acids and repurpose the stop codon to be an amino acid instead. Oh, weird. What, what kind of amino acid is it? Like, what's its function? Ah, so that's where I think it gets really exciting. There are two of them. One is called selenocysteine and the other is called pyrolysine. And the function of these the pyrolysine specifically that I'm interested in is, is uh, to be a component of these proteins that are involved in metabolism. Uh, and so it's cr- this, this amino acid is critical for the function of genes that are involved in converting one compound to another compound. And in the ocean, this serves one purpose, but it turns out that this also has a a role in the human gut. And that's kind of how I went from marine science to this gut microbiome study. Well, what is the function in the marine environment versus the gut environment? Have you figured that out? Yeah, so in the marine environment, and this this was sort of earlier work, this isn't work that I did, but microbes convert a compound called trimethylamine to methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas and is important in understanding, you know, the carbon budget in the ocean. And trimethylamine in the ocean comes from decaying organic matter. So 
dead organisms that are sort of breaking down in the ocean, that's a source of trimethylamine there. And that's also kind of uh, the reason that rotting fish smells bad. That's that compound is called trimethylamine. Um, but in the human gut, it has a completely different role, or rather I should say, uh, its role is very important for human health. So it's in the human gut, it's sourced from animal-based diets. So when you eat uh, meat and, and, and things like that, um, the gut microorganisms sort of break down the compounds and one of those is trimethylamine. So it is actually sourced from meat and then it goes into the liver where it's converted to trimethylamine N-oxide. And the key important piece of information about trimethylamine N-oxide or TMAO is that it's causative uh, so it, it influences the development of cardiovascular disease. And of course, you know, this is a super important topic because cardiovascular disease is a main cause of, of death. And, and so when I noticed that there are organisms in the gut that are essentially taking trimethylamine out of circulation, they're consuming it, uh, using this genetic code expansion dependent pathway that seemed to be really important. And so I went further into that and sort of uh, looked into a, a number of other studies. And all of this was done using uh, computational tools in a supercomputer and reanalyzing massive data sets. So a lot of work that other people produced, uh, but I sort of looked at it differently because of this genetic code expansion role of repurposing the stop codon to make this metabolic gene. So how do you know that this is um, a negative thing inside of the human gut? What if it's just neutral or it's, if someone eats a lot of meat that they'll just have, uh, it'll activate this amino acid production where they can metabolize the trimethyl meat? Yeah, so this is that's a good question. It's something that we're still figuring out because uh, it's hard to sort of have all of these pieces together because there's so many different details and the context is so complicated because, you know, people eat lots of different things, have lots of different organisms, uh, microbes in the, in the gut microbiome. So how do you sort of know which, which piece is playing a major role and if something is actually happening or not? And so one of the key things I think here is that it's sort of a preliminary finding where we have these pieces, but we don't really know for sure how, if, if and how it's happening. One piece of data that we do have is transcriptomic data. So data is showing that certain genes are expressed by gut microbiome uh, bacteria and that data shows that this pathway is expressed in the human gut and also in the mouse gut studies. Well, why don't you um, sample several carnivore people and then several vegetarians look at their gut microbiomes and see if there's, um, you know, the prevalence of bacteria and the transcriptomics. So they just not expressing it in a vegetarian person and, you know, expressing it a lot in a person that's on a carnivore diet, et cetera. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. That's actually exactly what I, one of the things I want to do next, because what we did find, so these are all other people's studies and I was doing data mining. So I was re reanalyzing work that others had done and they make their data publicly available and for, for things like data mining. And so one thing I did look at was, um, there's a study that showed which members of the gut microbiome increase 
when you have an animal-based diet versus a plant-based diet. And this specific organism that has the genetic code expansion, this whole pathway we're discussing, um, rapidly and significantly increases in abundance. And that's a reproducible um, finding that they had. And uh, at the time, this pathway wasn't really being discussed, but I noticed, I started noticing the specific taxon, this Bilophila, uh, in all of these studies. So that was one piece. They do increase, it, the bacteria that has this pathway increases rapidly in abundance when there's an animal-based diet. Uh, and so that was what I saw from this earlier study. And they expressed this pathway and that was a separate study I looked at. And finally, when you look at a large group of people who have cardiovascular disease and those that don't, like the control group of the healthy population, and this was about 200 people, give or take, in each group, uh, this, specific this, this specific bacteria called Bilophila is significantly enriched in the healthy group, the control group, as opposed to the group with cardiovascular disease. So we're sort of still gathering these pieces together to see what they mean, but it seems like sort of too much for it to be a coincidence because they have a mechanism to, to use this compound to prevent it from going into circulation for uh, to becoming a cardiovascular disease causing compound. So they express that pathway and they're enriched in the healthy group and that pathway is actively expressed. And so it's sort of, still preliminary, but promising, I think. Yeah, it makes sense that if there's more of a substance, you know, a food or a metabolite available, that the bacteria that would take advantage of that would proliferate and change themselves to take advantage of it. So it makes total sense, you know, but I guess the question is, when the bacteria take care, you know, take advantage of it and the person's healthy, what are they doing differently from someone that's not healthy? You know, they mm. both may be eating a significant amount of meat, but maybe, the unhealthy people are also having, you know, a lot of sugar or something else. Well, what's the difference in those two? Yeah, that's the thing. There's so many variables. Uh, and it's, it's, at least in my work, it's impossible to account for them and to sort of uh, have all of the pieces in order to say exactly how this is happening. But the weird thing is, and one of the reasons that I was excited to publish the study about this is that the bacteria I'm, I'm discussing, which seem to have a helpful effect, although it's it's still preliminary, or thought to be pathobionts, or thought to be harmful under certain circumstances, or neutral at best. And so I think that this is potentially a new role for them uh, under certain circumstances. Perhaps that they are beneficial, uh, and the fact that they have this pathway as as a person who studies pathways and metabolism, this was interesting to see uh, just in terms of trying to figure out what are the sources of certain compounds and what are the sinks. So, you know, where are things going? And, uh, you know, we have these like arrows that show this compound is converted to this other compound. So being able to say, look, there's this other arrow on this map of where things are going, I think was important to sort of fill in that detail, especially because of the health implications that these compounds have. Um, but I think that it would be critical to sort of pinpoint it better. And hopefully we would be able to do more work to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know if anything is really a pathobiont or beneficial. It's really depends on context. Yeah, I, I think 
Oh yeah, it's, it, I I think so as well, and I think that sort of it, it's it, because it's such a comp complex system, it's sort of difficult to pull apart what's happening. And some studies have these like germ-free mice, for example, or organisms that don't have a mi microbiome, and and they have an artificial microbiome comprised of certain organisms. And it's a model system, so there's there's benefits for studies where you can sort of tease apart these different connections but is it really reflecting what's happening in a more complex system uh i think sometimes yes sometimes maybe not necessarily uh and so it becomes really difficult and i think the more pieces that we have uh, about what's going on sort of the better we can see this picture of, of what's happening but then you have all these different uh, uh, microbiome differences between different individuals and with certain diets, and it just becomes almost infinitely complex. Well, how are you going to reduce the complexity? How do you, how do you feel like you're going to get your arms around this? You know, uh, I think uh, a lot of experimental work and a lot of analysis of, of large data sets are is sort of going to start to fill in those gaps, and that's one of the reasons I'm excited to do computational biology. Uh, it sort of lets you uh, it lets you find something that you think is interesting and then look for it in other places uh, and see see if it has a role. But then, of course, we also need to do a lot of experimental work as well to follow that that up and to confirm those or deny those ideas. What's the role of the trimethylamine if it's not taken up by a bacteria? And if it is, what do they turn it into? What metabolite comes from that? Ah, so if if they uh, if they consume it, they take a methyl group off. So instead of trimethylamine, it becomes dimethylamine. So instead of three methyls, there's two on there. Uh, but I think the critical thing is if they're consuming it, then it's no longer being transported to the liver, where it would become uh, a proatherogenic compound. It wouldn't become trimethylamine and oxide. And trimethylamine oxide become is contributes to the formation of plaques, and so that's kind of how it uh, causes is a causative agent for cardiovascular disease. So you have this grim outcome for uh, trimethylamine oxide, but if you can avoid, if if your gut bacteria can help you to not make trimethylamine oxide, maybe. Uh, then there's less plaque formation. And in fact, that's what they see in the in a mice study. Uh, the the Bolophila, the bacteria that uses trimethylamine, is significantly enriched in, in mice that don't have these plaques forming. And I think it's because instead of becoming trimethylamine anoxide and becoming a plaque, uh, they the bacteria consume it, doesn't go in the liver, doesn't cause this health problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so it's potentially having this very beneficial role uh, by, by using this pathway that's enabled by genetic code expansion. So when the bacteria take off a methyl group and becomes dimethylamine, then what happens to it? Where does it go? What does it do? Uh, that's a really good question. And there's another group of organisms that can use dimethylamine in the human gut. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I'm not, I don't think that it's yet known exactly what happens uh, with that compound. And that's something that I really want to get at in my 
um, sort of ongoing and planned work in the future. Uh, but if it doesn't go to the liver, then maybe it could be excreted or used by other microbes. Uh, and I think the exciting thing would be as long as it doesn't contribute to this plaque formation, then effectively it could be a neutral you know, compound instead of a harmful compound. But yeah, I do really want to answer that question in my future research for sure. So no one knows what it's used for or where it goes? Like what's the next step in the chain? Uh, so if the bacteria use it, yeah, no one knows what happens to it afterwards. There's another group of microbes, there are archaea that can also use it. And if they use it, then it becomes, they, they convert it to methane. And that's sort of earlier work before that preceded the work that I did. Well, I mean, so if you're looking for the presence and levels of trimethylamine, that would tell you one thing. If you also look for the presence and levels of dimethylamine, that would tell you still more. Regardless, you know, it'll give you a hint as to who's in there in a given gut or a situation. Um, but it, would, it probably would be important to find out um, what other compounds it can break down to and what happens to it, because then you can look for those as well. That would give you further info on who's in there and who's uh, who's chewing it up and taking off another methyl group or something. You know? Yeah, so exactly this, I think, is what's so exciting about this. So earlier, you asked, or we were talking about these examples where, where you try to sort of simplify things and maybe learn from that or maybe it doesn't really show you what's happening so one thing that we're working on now is growing these these bacteria in the lab so you know out just in petri plates uh, and feeding them trimethylamine and seeing exactly how they use it and what it's converted to um it to, to sort of find out this missing gap uh that i think is really important and that, of course, would, would be very helpful to know. And these these microbes, this Bilafla, they're available uh, to grow. And so we're trying to do that. We have these, you know, anaerobic chambers set up and and seeing exactly what they make of it. But yeah, that's my ongoing work. I'm, I'm really excited to find that out because there are a lot of mechanisms like how do they regulate using these compounds? What do they actually produce from it? Um, it, I think is really important to answer those questions. Uh, and I think that it has a lot of implications for human health. Yeah, whenever you say the name of the bacteria, I think of falafra, you know, like falafel, but I know it's not that, so. I know, the name is weird, <laughs> the bulafala name. So it's named that because it's a bile-loving bacteria. So below, I don't know how to exactly, the, like bile is the first part and then bilophila is like like love bile bacteria um and oh bile like b-i-l-e bile yeah b-i-l-o is the first oh. part uh it's funny how there's so many different names and new new bacteria and it's funny because this is such an not such but this is this one i think has been known for about 30 years and uh yeah, they, they first named it, they found it on, a, I believe it was an infected appendix infection, appendicitis, or, and immediately it was thought to be, you know, a harmful organism. But the fact that it was located in a place that was like infected, does that mean that it's actually a harmful bacteria or does it just happen to be there? And I'm kind of leaning towards 
the fact that it could sort of go either way. But yeah, it's kind of a weird name for it. Um, so you said it's bio, like a bio lover. What, what does that mean? Where is it found specifically? Like, is it found just in our gut or is it found near the liver or the bile duct or where is it people? Uh, so it's found in the gut and the samples I looked at um, are fecal samples. Uh, and, but it's also found in like uh, appendix, like appendicitis and different infections. And it's thought to be harmful and like potentially involved or associated with a, a number of, of human health problems like uh, inflammatory bowel disease and uh, the appendix infection and, and things like that. And so it kind of has a bad reputation as a, as a harmful bacteria. And I think in fact, maybe it, it's helping under certain circumstances. So in the context of, of trimethamine, for example. Um, yeah, it's sort of an odd bacteria. But, and I think the fact that it expands its genetic code uh, on its own is interesting because usually when you think of DNA and amino acids and things like that, there's you know four letters of DNA and 20 amino acids. And so the fact that these have 22 amino acids and to enable this whole mechanism of consuming trimethamine, to me, it suggests that this, this is really happening because uh, you need this, the cell needs a whole set of genetic machinery just to expand its, its genetic code. And then when this happens, it's to produce a single amino acid in one gene, and that's the gene for using trimethamine. And so I think that this may be an important sort of function of this bacteria. But then every time, I shouldn't say every time, I'd say most of the time when I look at studies that look at trimethamine and the human gut and cardiovascular disease, there's only sort of one arrow on, on the diagram and it's, it's that trimethamine goes to the liver. And so I think it's exciting to sort of say, hey, wait, it doesn't necessarily for the liver. Bacteria can use it in the gut. Like that, that, yeah. that so that was the first question I think you asked. Uh, my background sort of in marine science. And when I saw this was happening in the gut, it seemed too important sort of to pass up. What if you worked with a chemist and you looked at the structure of trimethylamine and you said, all right, what, you know, okay, so we know that some bacteria could take off a methyl group once that happens, now what's amenable? You know, what what do you what biologically would tend to happen with a molecule like this with these kind of bonds in it? Like, is there any field of study where they look at okay, for a given molecule based on its bond and structure and everything, it's probably likely that biological entities would would take this bond off or that bond off. They tend to do that, and then maybe you could just using a computer looking at the chemistry of it figure out what kind of uh, metabolites are likely to be created by other organisms, you know, by bacteria and stuff. Yeah, there, so there are methods for this. Um, there, it's possible to like uh, label compounds, like radioactive labels that you attach, like a, a, um, and then you can sort of follow the compound in its progression through you know, whether it becomes biomass or if it's converted to another organ, uh, to another compound and sort of to follow along the chemistry and see what it becomes. And that's exactly the sort of work that I want to do to fill this in. Um, and in fact, that's sort of what I was working on earlier before I 
in in marine systems i was interested in this like marine bacteria uh and then i came across this gut study these gut studies with this or data from these gut studies um so that's definitely doable and i think a really critical next step yeah again why would they call it bilafra if there's no evidence of it like eating bile or hanging around the bile duct or using compounds in bile i mean it must right I think it does uh, use bile, and I'm actually not sure what how, exactly how. Uh, I guess I'm not I'm not that knowledgeable on all of the studies, sort of on how it increases or uses bile. I know that that's its history, but I'm trying to think about the genes involved or the mechanisms, and I think I need to go to the literature before I can answer that one better. Yeah, I'd encourage you to look at like the history, like who discovered it, in what context, and all that, because it has that name for a reason, and that may give you clues as to what to look for, you know, genetically and everything. Yeah, I think that would be definitely interesting to know as well. I think it might be sort of an adjacent uh, sort of uh, pathway that it has, or an adjacent metabolism um, from the trimethylamine one. Uh, yeah, this is my first foray sort of in the human gut bacteria story, and I sort of uh, zoomed in just on the one pathway when I noted when I noticed the heart disease, the cardiovascular disease connection. But yeah, these these I think these genomes are a few mil, you know, uh, millions of base pairs, three or four or five million uh, base pairs, and like three to five thousand genes. Uh, for each organism, and I, I looked at you know a couple of dozen genes and sort of zoomed in on those genes. But yeah, what's also exciting is that so many of these genes remain unannotated, so you could have you know hundreds of genes where you just don't know what they do. Period in an organism, they're just hypothetical, and so I think that that's kind of the wild west now of. Um, a lot of microbiome research trying to figure out everything these organisms are capable of. Well, who do the Bilafra tend to hang out with in close proximity? Has that been identified? Like, what other bacteria are always present when they're around, whether it's a mouse, a person? Or, I don't even know if that'll help, but at least the people, maybe. It's a good question, and I don't know the answer to it, but I think that was sort of looking at these pieces of the data sets for Bilafra might help answer that. Um, it can, because it's all, it can also help understand what are they taking, what are they producing, who else is using that, and like what is, who, what's the co-occurrence? So like who, who is also there in the microbiome alongside them? And yeah, I, I think that that is answerable from the gut microbiome data sets, but not something that I have yet answered. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that would be good to know for sure. Okay. Well, very good. Um, so what, uh, I mean, what's next? Like what kind of experimentation are you looking to do? You know, like what, literally what's your next step to starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together? Ah, uh, yeah. So we, we, what, what you asked before, what you were suggesting before is one of the main things we're doing that, um, in terms of growing these organisms and then tracking the compounds. So what are, what are they producing? What are they doing with the trimethylamine? Um, and, and, but also like how fast do they use it? Under what conditions do they consume it? I think 
sort of filling in that data would be important. And so the, the next steps are now like grow the Bolophila because they're commercially available. So you can just buy them. Uh, you don't have to like isolate them or, or anything like that. You just purchase a vial and, you know, put them on a Petri plate and, and sort of uh, track what they do, how fast, what do they produce? Um, and also look at what genes they're expressing and any sort of like accessory pathways and things like that. So those are so those are kind of the immediate next steps. And I'm excited to do this because of these health implications, but also to better understand, you know, more generally the metabolism and what these these bacteria are doing and, and how they they do that. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work? Uh, I think the there's a website from my um, postdoctoral advisor and the Oregon State University put out a release sort of about this study. Uh, and so I think those are probably both good sources of information. Okay, very good. Well, Veronica, thanks for coming. It's been an interesting call. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was great talking to you. And um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to sort of present these findings. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.